This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. This morning, in honour of Irish Book Week, we're going on a virtual tour of bookshops living and dead. And our Toaster Challenge guest this week is the poet Kerry Hardy, whose new collection of poems, Where Now Begins, will be published next month by Blood Axe Books. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. So, Peter, what have you got on the table today? Not a thing and a nothing. Kind of. Oh. <laughs> no, kind of. <laughs> nothing. nothing. Come on, you have to have something. I haven't got anything at all. Uh, more of a kind of a... I don't know, like a ramble or, or a riff or maybe like an incoherent meandering. But it's I was just kind of thinking mm. about bookshops. Like I'm always in and out of bookshops, but recently, like everything else, this has been a bit surreal. Can you browse? Can you touch the books? I'm, I'm there with my mask, breathing heavily in the poetry corner, afraid, afraid to breathe on the books. But it got me thinking about bookshops in the city and remembering all the hours spent browsing in places that have disappeared. Like, do you remember Greens in Clare Street? Yeah, of course. I mean, who who could who's ever been there who could not not uh, remember it? It was just uh, on top of anything. It was just a physically beautiful bookshop, wasn't it? But yeah, of course, I remember. Yeah, it. I mean, not not to get I mean overly nostalgic, but I mean, I just because I, I remember how weird it was a couple of years back when I you know stopped at the corner of Clare Street and uh, and stared at it because God, you know, surely and and of course it wasn't there. Green's bookshop had just kind of vanished, and instead. You know, there was, there was a corner of my brain that expected to see it and, you know, the green painted book barrows under the awning on the street outside and so on as I crossed over from Marion Street. Instead, I found myself looking at expensive shirts, the lilac button cuff, the blue cadogan, the Cavendish light blue stripe. Yeah, I know. My God, when you think of it like shirts in green. Yeah, I know, so yeah. I don't know. What was it called again when it changed? It was called Henry Germain, wasn't it? The, the London shirt makers and court tailors. Oh, yeah. Business shirts made from 100 thread count Egyptian cotton ties mm-hmm. brought from raw silk to finished product in Como in Italy and all that kind of stuff. Far from it was I reared myself. But inside, mm-hmm. when you know where the books and post office used to be, you could see all the neat shelves of business shirts. And I found myself kind of, in a way, reluctant to accept the visible evidence of the new life of this corner shop. I mean, I could still see the shop so clearly in my mind's eye, mm-hmm. but the shirts kept kind of receding to, to reveal that slightly chaotic, do you remember a downstairs section with its small selection of new books and a queue in front of the post office window and in September queues of harassed parents with their long list of school books. Yeah, that's true actually. In fact, every time I walk by there I still just think of greens. That's what I think of. So it's kind of sad when a bookshop disappears. I mean, one of my favourite bookshops was the Exchange in Dorky. Do you remember the Exchange in Dorky? Oh, I love that because I, I love the whole idea of, 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 a, of a book exchange. How did that work again? Oh yeah, so you could you could go in there and you bring all your second-hand books and you'd exchange them and then Michael in there would give you money or exchange it. You could exchange for another book if you wanted as well. But um, I grew up around there and I went to school around there so I just... Oh, I just loved going into the exchange. And at one stage, my father got obsessed with the exchange and I think he was nearly thinking of going into partnership with Michael. That would have been interesting. But yeah, it was just so wonderful to have a, such a brilliant bookshop right in the middle of the village. Of course, I'd always be trailing home from school and going in there as well. But many's the great book that I found in the exchange in Dorky. 
Of course, there was Eamon's as well in, in Glasgow. I mean, I think it's still there. Do you, do, do you ever go there, Peter? I, I really darken the south side that far out, that far south, if I, if I can avoid it, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, but that that's still going strong, actually. And um, yeah, it was near the Forum Cinema, I remember. So it was great having the Forum Cinema and a bookshop side by side. But it's kind of, I, don't, I always think it's sad, like when a bookshop disappears, you know, I mean, on the one hand, you have your kind of regular sort of bookshops with their, you know, relatively predictable lines of new titles by the currently favoured. And you can kind of predict what's going to be in the window or on the front shelves. But the real joy for me is the secondhand shop because, you know, like dingy and dull, mm. others, you know, that the stock might often be, that the real thing that they offer is surprise, that, you know, the random encounter with the book mm. placed there, you, you imagine maybe by some kindly serendipitous God, maybe exactly so you should find it. And, and that's where the, all the unsought, life-changing books are stored. The books that you would never have thought to search out, but you suddenly find, and there you are, you know, some new, some new treasure. I mean, you know, like going back to Green, the friend of mine was always finding amazing treasures there, which which not, not, not never really happened, happened to me. Mm-hmm. But I mean, bookshops, I suppose, reward that kind of, if, if you're there at them all the time, they're gonna, you're going to find... These these amazing things, but it's just the, it's just the looking around is the fun of it, you know, and the smell of secondhand bookshops, and also opening a book and just re- realizing that somebody owned this. One of my favorite books I got was I think it was like a 1912 edition of Anna Karenina, but beautifully hardback green bound book in two sections. I mean, the writing is so small, <laughs> but I still suffered my way through it. And anyway, I mean, you don't really suffer through Anna Karenina because it's such an amazing book. But I loved that. And it was somebody had written Scarborough 1913, I think it was on the inside. Uh, such yeah. a beautiful find. I know, I know. And then I remember like just continuing the nostalgia trip there because I remember Fred Hannes as well. Do you remember Fred Hannes in, in Nassau Street? I do remember it, yeah. Did you, did you go there as well, Peter? You loved going there. There was something kind of forbidding about Fred himself. But there's always a sense that you're entering into some kind of cultural headquarters of, of Dublin or the old places like the APCK in Suffolk Street or the Ablana in Grafton Street uh, with its altar of, of poetry titles and the famous one, of course... Do you remember Parsons on the canal? Was that was that even still going? Yeah, we see Peter. You see now you're you're making yourself very very I'm embarrassing now. Yeah, um, I remember I remember my father uh, talking about the Aplana and Grafton Street, and I remember as well him talking about going to Parsons during his lunch break and seeing the two Mrs. Miss Parsons inside there. And of course, it was a fav- favorite haunt of Paddy Kavanagh's as well, wasn't it? Just on the bridge there. I was kind of at the. I mean, I wasn't really in the. I'm not. I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old. And so I didn't. I missed the kind of uh, the the height of Bagatonia and and the par- and Parson kind of mania. So you know, mm-hmm. Parsons is supposed to be the place where one met as many interesting writers on the floor of the shop as on the shelves. Mary Lavin. Oh, yeah, said. That, that's that's a good d- d- description. Was that yeah. Mary Lavin said that? Was it? Yeah, but she was, he was a bit dodgy about it. He said that, you know, something told you that this was a slightly privileged zone. You're welcome, but you have to behave yourself. Mm-hmm. And the books for sale, you know, gave the same sort of message. They weren't exactly neutral products, but they um, <laughs> bore the stamp of kind of kingly and flirtish oh, yeah. kind of approval. <laughs> I would have been afraid to go in there. Have you been reading a book about that, Peter? There is inevitably a book about it. I mean, there is a book called Parsons Bookshop at the Heart of Bohemian Dublin, 1948 and 1989 by Brendan Lynch. But... I've only, I mean, I've only, to be honest, I only one read a memory of it, and that's having marched up Bagger Street and over the canal to inspect it, and I, you know, mm-hmm. hoping to encounter someone, and didn't get anyone, meet anyone, sniffed for the ghosts of Kavanagh and Behan, 
a quick yeah. scan of the shelves and sloped out self-consciously because it was it was kind of too small to hide in. The books need to be just a certain ideal size for a bookshop. And mm-hmm. it has to be kind of a place that you can hide in. You know, below a certain yeah. square footage, you start to feel like an intruder, you know. That I think as well, when you love bookshops, you kind of set off and you have your own little trail. Um, like there's, there's books upstairs. Do you remember when that was opposite Trinity? Uh, that was such a fantastic space to go into. Well, it was a short journey. I, I followed on this journey is all around from South, you know, where was it from? The George's Arcade, South King Street, outside, you know, College Green, now Delir Street. And the secret book and record shop, remember, you know, which is still there in, in Wicklow Street. Yeah, is it is. Place. But just to say as well about books upstairs, it, it was always such a fantastic place for writers. I mean, you were talking about yeah. Parsons there. The, the original one that I remember opposite Trinity was so small, but I used to love going upstairs and looking down over the balcony and you always met yeah. writers there. Also, That's Right. Morris, um, it has to be said, Morris Earls and Ruth Kenny, they were brilliant at, and they still are, at having literary yeah. journals there as well. And you always knew Completely, you could yeah. go in there. They'd always say hi. They'd ask you about things you've been writing or whatever. They're always really interested. And of course, as well now, Morris has been running for many years, the Dublin Review Books. So, but yeah, and you're talking about the secret bookshop. I even, I love the title of that bookshop. Um, should we even reveal to listeners where that is if they don't know where it is? Because it is supposed to be secret. Well, it's harder now because the corporate or the council banned the um, sandwich boards outside. Uh-huh. Um, but you have to you have to go you have to go down this kind of secret passageway past you know doctors and chemists and whatever whatever and all the posters on the wall and finally you you, you get into it's, it. It's up near Fallon. Sorry, it's up near Fallon and Burn there on. Oh, Wicklow Street. Sorry, you just said that earlier. Um, I suppose in a way shirts can never, just to get back to what we're saying, shirts can never replace these wonderful bookshops. Uh, what I love about them as well is that they're dreamy spaces. You go in and you enter this kind of still zone. And as you said earlier, you find books that you, you've never even thought of, thought of finding because essentially they're books that other people owned and, and if they're secondhand. And, and yet you, I always just kind of get this huge urgency to want them. But I love being there and dreaming when I'm there. Do you get that kind of dreamy feeling in the, those bookshops? I do, yeah. I like going to charity shops and wearing, getting secondhand clothes and I like going to secondhand bookshops as well. So, I don't mm. know, it's just the, the idea that other people have inhabited both the clothes and the books is kind of the nice, mm. nice thing. But yeah, I think they're, they're mental spaces. They're, as you say, they're places for thinking and dreaming and the best of them have an atmosphere that make them seem like some kind of outward embodiment of the inner life, mm-hmm. you know, the physical proportions or the disposition of the shelves, the smell of old books. They all seem like extensions of the imaginative life and they leave an impression that they can be they can be entered and re-entered long after you've left. They're part of what Susan's, and here we're getting very highfalutin now, but they're, they're part of what Susan yeah, Sontag calls the geography of pleasure. Oh, excuse me. That's that's very, very posh. The geography of pleasure. Mm, that's interesting. So wh- where did she say that or why did she say that? She was writing about Walter Benjamin, or as I should say, Walter Benjamin. Oh you know? He was a, vo- a devoted collector of books and whose books were also, I suppose, portals into the, the rooms in Berlin, Naples, Danzig, Munich or Moscow, where they had been bought. And he said, like book hunting, mm-hmm. like the sexual hunt, as to the, to the geography of pleasure, um, he said, you know, another reason for strolling about in the world. I that's so interesting, isn't it? It does sound a bit predatory, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't get away with that now. No way, no way. I like that you can be alone in bookshops too. I don't know what you think about that, Peter. Yeah, I think I think yeah, they're constructed like to serve solitude. I mean, at one point in my life, I used to fantasize about running a bookshop. I you, you, I, I don't know if you even remember this, but I mean, I, I used to, I read mm-hmm. all these books about running a bookshop, 
I gathered all the technical information. I was thinking about stock management and computer systems. I never had a dream like that, Peter, but I think you definitely had. Um, I think you'd be you'd be just too busy reading all the books, Peter, to pay attention to the to the business side of it. But I know on the other hand, maybe I could see you. Why didn't you do it anyway? Yeah, I mean, sir, it's bookshop. I can, I can just see it. But I mean, it was just too real. I think it, was, it basically was about retail, whereas what I wanted to be was I wanted a kind of private city or an officially sanctioned privacy in some in, in some way. I mean, I wanted the kind of bookshop that no one would go into and I, I could just mm-hmm. be in there reading the books. You know, you know that kind of that kind of thing. It's like mm-hmm. I worked I worked in a library once and I used to be always getting into trouble for yeah. reading the books, which is because it's a very bad thing to be reading books in a library. But likewise, you don't want a, a bookshop that people are going to be coming into and looking for actual books, disturbing you, drinking your coffee there, um, hiding from customers mm-hmm. is, was, is, is the, the idea. And so it? in your head, Peter, are you often just standing outside the old Greens bookshop and wishing that you could get in? The only good thing is, I mean, that the shirts didn't last too long and... You know, I mean, in in some ways, maybe the ideal would be a bookshop operated by a shirt maker. You know, that that'd be good because then you wouldn't you get you pick up all the the good books. But yeah, that shop didn't last too long. It went into, I think, voluntary liquidation. It has yet to be replaced. So maybe the god of bookshops is up there somewhere, waving a cautionary and finger. And so that wasn't a book that you're talking about. It's not available at a bookshop near you. It's not listed on our show notes. But we just saw we just have a little chat about things we love bookshops and there will be no notes at www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com thanks for that chat Peter I really enjoyed it the end of the day at the end of the year the sky was old and smoky with dusk and I stood on the hill and I watched how the crows came flowing and flowing all down the sky. Then the field was spring, it was silvery shaken, and all the grasses were bowing and dipping. I saw the mowing, saw the new-cut hay, the strutting crow working the parchment stubble. And all the while the black hosts drifting, and winter strong, and the land not caring, and the slouch of fox, and the white corpse, Staring. That was Kerry Hardy reading from Where Now Begins, published by Blood Axe Books. And the official date, I think, is the 12th of November. Isn't that right, Kerry? It comes out, it comes out then. And I should say also there is a virtual reading today, the 22nd of October, as part of the Imagine Arts Festival, GOMA, that is Gallery of Modern Art, uh, Waterford, yep. Thursday, 22nd of October, half three. So anybody out there listening to this can also hear Kerry at half three today. So just to introduce Kerry... Kerry Hardy was born in and grew up in County Down. She now lives in County Kilkenny with her husband, the writer Sean Hardy. Her poems have won many prizes, including the Michael Hartnett Award for Poetry, National Poetry Prize, Catherine, Catherine and Patrick Cavanagh Award, James Joyce, Suspended Sentence, Lars O'Shaughnessy Award for Poetry. She's also published two novels, Hanny Bennett's Winter Marriage and The Bird Woman. And her selected poems was published by Gallery Press uh, in 2011, also by Blood Axe. And she has published two collections now with, with Blood Axe. Her seventh, Zebra, Stood in the Night, was published by Blood Axe in 2014 and shortlisted for the Irish Times Poetry Now Award. And her eighth, Where Now Begins, is, is the one that has just come out or is just about to come out. So Kerry Hardy is a member of, of Ace Thona. And just to give a flavour of some of the responses to her work, 
Hardy's skill as a lyric poet are second to none, and the meeting of that ability with the need to break new ground is productive of exceptional writing, reminiscent, but by no means derivative of Elizabeth Bishop, and that was Miriam Gamble in, in Poetry Ireland. A dark and gorgeous hymn to human mortality, said Claire Askew on The Ash and the Oak and the Wild Cherry Tree. The essence of her marvellous poems lies in the way she sees through a material world that is rendered truthfully, plainly, yet freshly. And that was George Shirty's in, in the Irish Times. So first of all, Kerry, congratulations on a fine new addition to an already impressive body of work. Can I just ask you, can I Can I just start actually by beginning? I mean, how do you feel when you actually finish a new book? I mean, are you happy with it? Or are you, do you immediately want to put it aside and move on to the next thing, the next poem or the beginnings of the next book? I want to pretend it doesn't exist um, <laughs> <laughs> because the book, it's all in the writing for me. Yeah. And, um, and first of all, you, I was talking with Ender before about this, that we get, we both seem to share the feeling of, oh God, it's terrible and lying awake. Also, I always feel as though I'm walking down the street with no clothes on. I get that feeling too, Kerry, <laughs> completely. Oh, do you? <laughs> the naked poets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a very common reaction to, when, to, to I suppose, when a, when, when a book is out there. But I mean, I mean, this is your eighth collection. So it's a feeling you've had. It doesn't get any better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and that kind of suggests, in, so in, you, you know, you're you're a prolific poet. You could, and so, and so I suppose just to go back to the poems themselves, does poetry come easily to you, or is it hard won? I think the best ones come easily. Dennis and Driscoll used to talk about the necessary poems. Dennis had this theory that that everybody should have a really consume time consuming daytime job, and then we'd only write the necessary poems. And all the rest would just float off into the ether. But Dennis had very strong ideas. Um, so yes, it's it's hard. It's hard one in that it's lived experience, and it's also hard one in the sense that I don't write without. I don't. I tend not to write unless I have an inspiration. But and so the inspiration comes, and then but and then after that, it takes a lot of craft and shaping. So it's 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 a two handed thing. Can, can I ask a question as well, Kerry, because I've really enjoyed the collection and congratulations. And I, I was just wondering, these are poems that certainly are not afraid to be dark. You're very aware of the cycles of life, but decay as well, the wax and wane of seasons. There's a huge sense of fragility of life there. Do you think you have to be brave to be a poet as well, to be unafraid to go into those dark places? Well, Actually, I, I don't think I had a choice. Life sort of dragged me into those dark places. And I think that if you live long enough and if you live a full life, life will automatically drag you into the dark places. I suppose whether or not you want to try and open your eyes in the dark places, does it take courage? I suppose it does. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it's you, you either do or you don't. Mm -hmm. You know, the way a child will automatically shut its eyes if it doesn't want to see something. And... I've always been stuck with eyes that mm -hmm. open. I was thinking, Kerry, like that poem that you began with, Crowlight. I mean, it's a, it's a really characteristic Kerry Hardy poem. I think it, it it seems to me that you know the strutting crow, the field in the shifting seasons, and the sky. You're, you're always a great sky poet, a great noticer yeah. of of birds, but the, you know, great images and observations. But it's like to me, the whole maybe getting back to what Enda was saying is the whole book is kind of suffused with a sort of crowlight. That it's, it's you know it's a sharp, sometimes bleak, but but closely observed light. I don't know if that's a fair sort of description. Well, I live in the country. I've got 
we've got two very lively Springer Spaniels, so you have to spend a lot of time walking around the place. <laughs> and they're hunting dogs. I mean, we don't do that, but they do. They actually, you can you can take a cue from a dog, you know, mm-hmm. it sees with its nose. And so, so, and then when you're not looking at the ground, you're looking at the sky. I, I, I suppose it's just the, the observation bit is very natural. The, the, the very last line comes from an old Scots ballad um, about Twa Corbys. I thought it was Henderson, but, but I'm not sure if it is. And, and that mortality thing, I think, is also always there in my work which is why I chose one of the reasons I chose this poem and there are great there are great poems about mortality in in the book you, you know in a sense because you're you're paying you're paying homage to uh, people who have died but there's also there's very powerful poems I, I remember one both the shutter which is which is a great poem I think and it's just you're looking in a mirror and it's like you you, you see the the bones of your forebears on your face you're so you, you talk about how age gives them access in the poem the poem, the poems go on, and I sort of sees where where should we go? They're saying, where the when the heart of your flesh goes cold. It's an extraordinary sort of image of you know that kind of past and the present kind of coming coming together like that. That one just came. That one was I actually literally about just before COVID began. All these poems were written pre-COVID. I just looked in the mirror and I saw my great aunt, and I suddenly and there it was, and the and. Yeah, it just came completely almost. I hardly had to tweak that one. Don't know where it came from. But a powerful, striking kind of image. I mean, the, the poem, or the book gets its title rather from, there's a poem, Letters from the Dead, which which again is, is, is very striking. It puts sort of remembering and forgetting in the mix. And you say, sometimes I think that forgetting is the same as remembering. Um, the same as not understanding where then ends and where now begins. I find that a really fascinating idea that, you know, forgetting and remembering somehow blend into each other, or it's like the border between forgetting and remembering, or between then and now is sort of permeable, or that they bleed into each other. Is that the kind of idea? Yes, it is. That poem was came from from a letter from reading a letter I actually wrote to my late brother about who died in India about seven eight years ago now, and um, and I was reading through these letters, and I'd actually written down those words, so that's where the 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 thing and and I suppose I was talking we were talking about it was a time when the ceasefires were being were were being negotiated and we were talking we were discussing that in the days when you wrote letters and so it was quite a long time ago these these were old letters but yeah where where then ends and where now begins what is the point in which we're always in now in one sense and we're always in then so that's what was it is also one of the things that interested him so much in his films yeah because you develop the idea that idea i mean in a sense there's a poem called now a very short poem called now yeah and you said that now is simply homelessness i mean it's a sort of it's almost as you describe it a space between yeah. you know the empty outbreath and the incoming in breath yeah because it seems to me we're always either rushing towards something or looking back that's something that's past, and and the actual moment of now is nothing. It's completely empty. But we won't stay there. We can't stay there. We have to go forward or go backwards. Um, and and then in the now is very difficult because it's it's a sort of pain to us to be empty. 
I don't know why. We have to fill everything all the time. Indeed. I mean, you said one time, I saw something that I, that I saw that you'd said that, that you write about the world as you, as you experience it, but you also say that behind all sort of creeds and religions that there's something, uh, I don't know, nameless or indefinable and transcendent. I just wonder, do, do those things, you know, you say that all prayers are poems, incantations arising out of darkness, joy or grief. I mean, is there a sense for you that poems can also be prayers? Do those, th- do those two things come together in any way? Well, that's what that poem intended. I think that there's this enormous, whether or not there is any sort of form of transcendence is a matter for personal belief. Um, I happen to believe that there is some sort of transcendence. I'm not, I don't know what it is. I think there's a very deep human need to, to be able to, to go reach out towards something. And that in a, in a sense, a poem is, it's where the internal life meets the external life. And it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of help me thing. It's a sort of help me understand, help me accept, help me something. And, and for me, a lot of poetry is that. And that's why it rings so deep. I did want to, this is all getting very cheerful, but I was wondering about ageing. It's part of the collection as well, isn't it? Because Yeah, it is. It's very much part of the collection. Um, uh, um, Yes, yes. Well, yeah, well, ageing is a shock, isn't it? I mean, you always, you see other people and you think that that's not going to happen to you. (laughs) And then it happens to you. And what I I sometimes, I, I don't spend my whole life thinking about what were the advantages and the disadvantages. I mean, I love being 20 and I'm okay with the age I have now, but... But I'm not like one of these people who say, God, I would hate to be young again. Um, I think there's a huge loss in ageing, but there's also a huge gain in that you have you have more understanding, you have more cop on. On that notion, like ageing and, and sometimes a, a, like an impatience, like, like wanting to experience again the state where you're eaten alive by your fierce one lust for the world. But yet it doesn't seem to have, to, it just, that doesn't actually really seem to have diminished because the poems are, the poems are still, I mean. It, it, the, yeah, of course it's diminished the, in one sense, but in another sense, um, does it diminish? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just, there are also poems in that book about my mother's last couple of years in a nursing home, or there's two references to it. And I remember once going to, yes. in to visit her and I said to the guy, do you know what, one of the, the staff, how do you stand it? And he said, well, it's easier for the old, if, you've got, if you're a bit older, because you've got a bit of, it's very hard on the young ones because they haven't got enough life under their belts. And that really struck me when Jim said that because I thought, oh yeah, that's it, life under your belt. And that, I, I think the actual appetite can stay the same, but the amount of life and experience you have under your belt changes, and that changes the balance you have with things. Um, but still, looking in the mirror is a shock. <laughs> and so, moving on, Kerry, we'd love to hear you read Inishman, one of the poems in your new collection. Would you be okay about reading that first before we move into the toaster challenge? This, this. Last poem I'm going to read is called Inishman. It was written on Inishman, obviously. It was a visit and it was one of those amazing days when you think, 
Oh, why don't I live on an island forever? Um, and you forget all about the, the horizontal rain and such like. And I was watching two kids, two youngsters, two young ones, what, walking along, two little girls in bright dresses, walking along a stone wall. And um, they were really, really concentrating on it. And I thought, what happens if one of them falls off and lies on their back? And it was only, and then I wrote the poem, and it was only when I was getting it ready to read for you that I realized that that's what happened to me. I fell off. Um, so I'll just read it. Only a girl in a yellow dress walking a dry stone wall. Behind her, a miracle of landscape, a grid of gray walls, a strip of dark sea, and away in the distance, the smoke mountains dreaming. It's one of those lark days, a small wind is stirring, the sky is clean and infinite, thrumming with blue. The girl is intent on the stones, on her graceful, precarious progress, sees only which foothold will take her next step, the wall being long and uneven, and knows if she looks up, she'll fall, and she'll be left lying there, Sodden with being, all that fierce purpose gone sky west and crooked. That's great, Kerry. Thanks for that. So now, thank you for that, Kerry. That was wonderful to hear that beautiful poem. And we're going to move now on to the toaster challenge where Kerry has a really fine novel to talk about. I don't want to give away too much because Kerry's going to tell you all about it now. So Peter's getting the bread ready, aren't you, Peter? And he's putting it down into the toaster. So one, two, three. And Kerry, if you're ready, we'd love to hear a book that has touched you. The first time I read The Radetzky March, I thought it was the most amazing book I'd ever read. It was about 15 years ago. And then when you asked me what book to name, I named it. And then I thought, oh, God, I'd better read it again in case um, in case it isn't. And so I started it and I felt incredibly um, suffocated by the first 30 pages. And I thought, what? Is this a mistake? And then suddenly it did that thing which Joseph Roth does. Joseph Roth was um, born in Galicia. He, he writes about, it's about the fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's really a metaphor. The whole book is a metaphor. It's very witty. It's very beautifully written. It's got some amazing passages. Um, and it's it's about the, the stage a civilization gets to when it is absolutely, in, visually, it's absolutely perfect. But it's so tightly put together that one, do you remember those old-fashioned um, windscreens? And if a stone shot up, it shattered the whole windscreen into bits. And the, the, the novel is about the shattering. And it has this funny sort of start because it's the, the conceit he uses is that at the Battle of Solferino, this young lieutenant happens to see the emperor, who's also young, um, walking along with a spyglass. And he knows that the enemy can see and the, that they'll shoot him. So he dives in. And and um, knocks the emperor to the ground and um, gets a bullet wound in his shoulder. And as a result of this, he's made a, uh, a baron, which he doesn't want to talk because he comes from ordinary peasant stock. And then, but he just about manages to handle that. And then it's about 
the two generations that follow because the emperor then sees it as his personal duty to look after this man's descendants. Even when, and, and it, is, it is very funny, but it's also very, it's very tragic. Roth left, he left Germany in, on the day that Hitler was made chancellor uh, because he knew he would not survive. And in fact, he didn't survive anyway. He died in Paris in 1939 of pneumonia and, and alcoholism. But if you haven't read his books, just as Eileen Battersby said in the Irish Times, read this and then read everything he's written. And as soon as I reread re this for you, I started rereading the whole of Roth. And so I'm very pleased. And Peter, you have something to say about it too? You like it? As you say, it's an, ex it's an extraordinary book. I mean, I, you're right. I mean, I think like Roth wrote very intensively. I mean, he wrote a lot in a very short life. I mean, he was dead at 44. I mean, you think it was an extraordinary thing to think of it. And, you know, he 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 wrote a great number of things. But I, again, I think this is probably, and it's funny because I was reading Michael Hoffman, who translated, I don't know which translation you read, but Michael Hoffman yeah, translated it. Yeah, it was Hoffman's. And, and he says that he, that he thinks that it's his one impunable masterpiece. And the one that he actually stayed away from translating himself for, for, for a long time because it was so kind of big, I suppose, in his mind. And he, st he said, I still, I still can't quite believe I translated such a thing because I'm, I'm completely at a loss to understand how he wrote it. And he just says that it's kind of chapter after chapter, one kind of more brilliant than, than another, and as, you, as you describe. And that extraordinary period, the whole kind of the dual monarchy, Austria-Hungary. In the background is this senile emperor, the emperor growing increasingly sen senile, which is a metaphor for the Austro-Hungarian empire growing, and, and then the whole thing shattering, and this chaos that is Europe we have now, all these little nations that were sort of glued together by this extraordinary military thing, whereby nobody, n none of those soldiers seemed to have ever fought a battle, but they and they all really wanted to fight a battle, but they didn't know that the First World War was the battle. There's one, I mean, uh, there's one thing that, that, that Hoffman, you know, he says, if I had a favourite bit, what, what would that be? And he says, he doesn't really want to give it, to have a favourite bit because it's, it's all so good, but he does give one sentence. He does give one bit uh, at the beginning of chapter eight, and it's a great passage. I just, so I just maybe thought I would just read a tiny bit of it just to see. Do please. In in the years before the Great War, at the time the events chronicled in these pages took place, it was not yet a matter of indifference whether a man lived or died. When someone was expunged from the lists of the living. Someone else did not immediately step up to take his place, but a gap was left to show where he had been. And those who knew the man who had died or disappeared, well or even less well, fell silent whenever they saw the gap. When a fire happened to consume a particular dwelling in a row of dwellings, the site of the conflagration remained for a long time afterwards. For masons and bricklayers worked slowly and thoughtfully, and when they walked past the ruins, neighbours and passers-by alike recalled the forms and the walls of the house that had once stood there. That's how it was then. Again, just a kind of wonderful piece of of of, of writing, just a kind of a, one little example. Um, so that was so that was Harry Hardy's choice, the Rodeski March by Joseph Roth. And that was also Kerry talking and re uh, about and reading from her new collection of poems from Blood Express, Where Now Begins. So thanks very much for that, Kerry. Thank you. Thank you both. It was terrific. Thanks. And as always, 
Details of the books discussed are available from booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so... We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.